Our Old Testament reading is from Isaiah 58. As if Isaiah 58, uh, wonderful words of reminder to us, as spoken to God's people in days of old, that when they would fast, God would look upon the heart, and the Lord still does that. He is the one who is the searcher of hearts, and that in many ways forms the substance of our life before God. We'll be considering that a little bit today. But Isaiah 58, verses 1 through 12, give your attention to the reading of God's holy word. As it's read in the presence of his people, he gives it to us for our good. Isaiah 58, verse 1. Cry aloud and do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose, a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house, when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. Amen. This far the reading of God's holy word. May he add his blessing to it. And then the gospel of Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. Be on page 967 if you're using the Pew Bible. Matthew 9 beginning in verse 14 through to verse 17. Once again, this is God's holy word. Then the disciples of John came to him, that is Jesus, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, 
Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us balance more in prayer. So, Heavenly Father, we come humbly before your word. We know nothing except what you give to us, what you grant us by your grace. So grant us understanding, give us faith, hope, and love that we might live for you all of our days in the glory of Christ and in faith and trust of what you have done for us in accomplishing our redemption. Give us your grace and your spirit then as we consider these things together. Be with your servant as he brings your word. Cleanse him of sin. Um, and may you be glorified in this place. In Christ's name, amen. Dear congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, it was the great historical observer of America, Alexei de Tocqueville, who pointed out one of the main things that separated America as he saw it from his native Europe, what made this amazing experiment of ordered liberty in America works so well was that Americans seemed to give themselves uh, voluntarily to their community. There was no personal or financial gain to these things, but Americans seemed to him to desire to invest their time and to efforts into building up their community, into helping others in need, into making life better for everyone. This, of course, took massive buy-in and commitment certainly when our nation was a fledgling nation and, and wealth was not what it is today. But de Tocqueville was pointing out that which would basically form the, the, the bedrock or the backbone of our country for 200 plus years. That our, your, the national identity was seen and felt locally as well as nationally. And these shared values created a sense of belonging, of commitment, of sacrifice. It gave way to what we would come to see in the 18th and the, uh, uh, really the 19th and the 20th centuries of many of the voluntary organizations that formed and helped form American uh, civic life. The PTA, the Lions Club, the Rotary Club, the Knights of Columbus. Various organizations that are perhaps not for everyone, but everyone seemed to recognize they add something to the community. And they help people in, in some kind of way. These things seem to have faded greatly in recent years. Their membership is often quite old. No offense if anyone is a member of any of those organizations. And so is it any wonder why the American experiment seems to be in peril? Certainly we can at least say that is a big part of it. The lack of sacrifice giving in to uh, the community in ways that benefit the community more than the self. And we could probably say this provides something of, of a parallel to the church in our day. There's something missing 
from the churches. And I don't want to be all doom and gloom as we think about the church and the way it is. I think there are many things we can rejoice that we see in the church. There are many sins of the past that we have left behind. And yet we can say, I think honestly, that in many ways the church is in a state of decay in the West, decline. And to what do you attribute this? Maybe some people would say, well, we don't fast enough. We don't fast enough as, as God's people. And that may be true. I think as the American church, we probably fast much, much less than we used to. And really, fasting is a vehicle for praying, isn't it? Certainly, we need to pray more as a church. That certainly is true. And our own history can attest to this, right? the history out of which we have come. Did you know that at the beginning of the 20th century, the Christian Reformed Church had one day each month where the entire denomination would unite together in fasting and prayer. Did you know that? We'll mention that later, uh, but that's an astonishing thing to think about. And it's a practice now, fasting and prayer, that, that seems so foreign, almost weird to us as Christians in the 21st century. And so we might point to that. Well, there's a lack of fasting. And certainly you can point to a lack of, of prayer as well. But something that I want to uh, bring to us this morning is it's not just those things. It's also a lack of feasting. It's not just a lack of fasting, but a lack of feasting. We no longer feast on the glories of Christ with the eyes of faith. We do not spend time meditating on and thinking about and singing about and hearing about the glories of our risen King. Because our King is risen. And Jesus is with us. That's something that we need to take from this passage this morning. Jesus is always with us. This means that while we are fasting or eating or whatever the outward circumstances are that we are doing, we must feast on Christ by faith. And remember that he is always with us. So our first idea this morning is this. Fasting with the Israelites, fasting with the Israelites. This is a, a, an interesting alliance that we have here with the Pharisees and the disciples of John the Baptist that come to the disciples of, of Jesus here. That's something that should catch our attention, right? Uh, strange partners here. You see some, sometimes strange partners on the world's stage. Why do two countries come together? They don't necessarily share much common interest except they have a common enemy. And that's something like what's, what's going on here. The Pharisees and John the Baptist and his followers, they were both known for their fasting, but why did they fast? It's important for us to understand why they did it. So why did the Pharisees fast? They did it as, as basically the, the religious elite class in their day. They were leaders of Israelite civic life, which was bound up, of course, with their religion. And what they had done, the system that they had created was basically uh, adding rules upon the law of God, sort of forming this life that they said, here's how you live faithfully. And what they actually did was they fasted much more than the Old Testament prescribed. There was only essentially one prescribed fast in the Old Testament from Scripture, and it was the Day of Atonement. But as we know, we, we read in Luke 18, famous story, that the Pharisee and the tax collector, when the Pharisee is boasting in himself before God in the prayer, do you remember what he says? He says, I fast twice a week. And so the Pharisees would fast on Mondays and Thursdays. 
they had expanded so much the number of fasts in the year to have multiple fasts per week. And why did they do this? Well, they did it, as we see in Scripture, to be noticed by others, to be praised by others. We read in John chapter 12, they, that is the Pharisees, loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Matthew chapter 23, when Jesus is giving his scathing rebuke of the Pharisees, he says this of them, they do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace, and they love being called rabbi by others. They loved the glory of man. What does Jesus say about this? Jesus says, remember, in Matthew chapter 6, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So the Pharisees had built this system of fasting, not in order to honor God, but in order to receive the praise of others. Jesus goes on in Matthew 6, he says, when you fast... Do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Then he goes on to say this. So obviously the thought is running together here. Do, na- do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures where? In heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where was the treasure of the Pharisees? It was on earth. It was in the praise and the glory of man. And that forms uh, the mentality by which they fasted. But what about John the Baptist and his disciples? Why were they fasting? Well, it was much different than the Pharisees' reason for fasting, which is why it makes it so interesting that they come together here to question the, the disciples of Jesus. But that highlights for us the utter uniqueness of the person of Jesus Christ. And he is so unlike human expectations and what they would have thought their Messiah would have been, even for the followers of John the Baptist. And that's exactly what we see. Why why did they fast? They fasted as a show of their repentance. They fasted as a way to embody their repentance, which was not a bad thing. It wasn't a bad thing that John the Baptist and his disciples were wanting to uh, show to themselves and to the Lord that they were repenting of their sins. Herman Ritterboss says this, John the Baptist's way of life and that of his disciples is entirely directed to the preparation for the coming of the kingdom, especially to that of judgment. So they're making themselves ready because they believe that the day of the Lord is near. They're making themselves ready for the judgment that is to come with the day of the Lord. So the ascetic way of life of John the Baptist, of his disciples, John the Baptist living out in the wilderness, not living sort of a normal life at all, a very unique character. And he, had a, a, he was practicing a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Come, be baptized. Repent of your sins. Embody this repentance because you understand that judgment is going to come and it's going to come soon. They were making themselves ready for the coming of the kingdom, for the coming of the Messiah. Very different than the Pharisees' reason for fasting, isn't it? 
But they both take offense at Jesus. They both take offense at Jesus and Jesus' followers because of how they lived. They weren't known for their fasting. So why are they offended at Jesus? Well, for the Pharisees, the answer is fairly easy, right? Jesus is challenging the stranglehold that they have on religious power. The way, the power that they had to kind of shape and define Israelite religious life. The respect that they had, the honor that they had was being challenged by Jesus. So they are offended. They kept people under their thumb with their teaching and their rules, Jesus says this in Matthew 23, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so practice and observe whatever they tell you, but not what they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear. They lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They kept people under their thumb. John the Baptist's disciples were offended because Jesus and his followers don't seem to be embodying repentance and an awareness of coming judgment, to be contrite in preparation for judgment. The sackcloth that John the Baptist was wearing, where is that? Where is your knowing that the day of the Lord is near? Jesus lives as though salvation has come. His followers are living as though salvation has come already. So they take offense. But that is the point entirely, isn't it? In Jesus, salvation has come. It may not have been the way John the Baptist initially thought, the way that his disciples expected, but salvation has come in Jesus. In the presence of his person, salvation has come. So the question then for us is this. Do we... Will we accept the manner in which salvation has come? We read in Luke chapter 7 when John the Baptist's disciples come to Jesus. Jesus says this, Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Blessed is the one who is not offended by the manner of my salvation. And this was the challenge for John the Baptist and his disciples. They thought that what was going to come first was judgment for sinners, for the ones who weren't repentant, and then God's blessedness of salvation would come. But how did Jesus come, brothers and sisters? He came to seek and to save the lost. He came bearing the judgment of God and proclaiming salvation in and through his name. So that leads us right to the second point. First, we had fasting with the Israelites. Second is this, feasting with the king. Jesus did not have his disciples fasting regularly because his arrival is a time of blessing and celebration, but it is only that for those of faith. It's only those who see the blessedness of Jesus with the eyes of faith. Again, I'll quote quote, uh, Ritterboss. He says this, Jesus' disciples may live in the joyful certainty of the breakthrough of the great time of salvation and may behave accordingly because of their belonging to him. And as we will see, this is for us too. This is the reality that we hold on to by faith and in the light of which we live. Jesus' disciples may live in the joyful certainty of the breakthrough of the great time of salvation and may behave accordingly. 
We are to live spiritually before our God and before the world. We are to live and behave accordingly, knowing that the great time of salvation has come in Jesus Christ. Three illustrations that Jesus uses in this passage. First is the, the wedding feast. What, what, is a, what kind of a gathering is a wedding? We always think of what are the, kind of the two guideposts, get-togethers for people, weddings and funerals. What are weddings? More on the joy side or the grief side? The joy side, right? Funerals have that too for those who live faithfully in Christ. But weddings are a time of, of celebration, perhaps not for everyone. Maybe sometimes there are some weddings where people aren't entirely thrilled with the match that, that has been made. But weddings are times of, of generally great joy and celebration. If the Lord blesses all of my children with spouses, I will... Uh, this is kind of a tough thing for me, right? Because I will weep in sadness uncontrollably at three of them. And uh, I will be in joyful exuberance at one of them. I won't tell you how that breaks down, but I have three daughters and one son. So maybe if that helps you at all. It's a time of celebration, of joy. And why is salvation a time of celebration? Why is the salvation that comes in Jesus Christ, like unto, in this illustration that Jesus gives, like unto the joy and the celebration of a wedding. What is it about salvation? Well, it comes down to whether or not we understand what's going on in salvation. Whether or not we understand the glory that God gives to us in the wonder of being reconciled to him by grace. That's really what it comes down to, isn't it? Isaiah chapter 55 speaks of really the, the, the joy coming forth from God's working in salvation. Well-known passage. You shall go out in joy, be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing. And all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. When we see the righteous salvation of God, nature itself will cry out in wonder and in joy. And then this beautiful verse. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come forth the myrtle, and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. What is it about salvation? God is bringing forth the cypress instead of the thorn. He's bringing forth the myrtle instead of the briar. Based upon what we have done in the lives that we have lived, what is supposed to come forth? What is supposed to issue forth out of that condemnation, judgment, eternal separation from God? But what does God work in his salvation? Blessedness and communion with him. A life that we have with him forever of blessedness. And so this is really the, the, the issue that comes before us today is do we feast on those things? Do we feast on the wonder and the glory of Christ? Do we come before God in the cognizance of our minds and our hearts, understanding and knowing and seeking him, seeking his grace that we might understand and know more of what he has done? John Owen spoke of this when he said, If I have observed anything by experience, it is this, a man may take the measure of his growth and decay in grace according to his thoughts and meditations upon the person of Christ and the glory of Christ's kingdom and of his love. In other words, he's saying, if you want to see 
where your soul is in regards to grace and in regards to the work of God in your life and the joy you are taking in God and the contentment that you have in God and the communion that you are enjoying with God, apply to yourself this test. Are your thoughts upon the person of Christ? Are your thoughts upon the glory of Christ's kingdom? Are your thoughts upon his love? He's saying this, here's a feast for your soul that is always there for you. Do you, by God's grace, through his word, through worship, through scripture reading and prayer, do you come before God and take part in this feast for your soul? Do you think upon the person of Christ, who he is as God and man and your prophet and priest and king, just coming to earth, as a man, taking on human flesh to accomplish your salvation, do you think about that? Do you meditate on that? Do you delight in those things? Do you delight in the glory of Christ's kingdom when uh, you are weighed down by the challenges and trials of this life, by uh, all that you go through, by perhaps being tempted to, to, to say, you know, perhaps this Christianity thing is not for me? Do you meditate on the glory of Christ's kingdom and what he has for us in eternity? Do you meditate on his love? that brought him to the cross to bear your sins that you might be reconciled to him. Here's a feast for your soul. Whether you are a believer or an unbeliever, here stands the person of Christ, the glory of Christ's kingdom, and the wonder of his love. Here's a feast for your soul. Come and feast on him today for the first time, for the thousandth time. Come and feast on Christ. The second illustration that Jesus uses is this the peace piece of cloth, and, and that really is illustrating to us the, the, the newness of the new covenant that is not just going to be tacked on to the old. There is, is real fulfillment here. The movement of the old covenant to the new covenant, all within the unity of the covenant of grace, is one of promise and fulfillment. And Jesus brings the reality of that fulfillment. Thus, it's not just patching up holes. The book of Hebrews speaks of the the old covenant that was ready to pass away. It had gone obsolete because it points us to Jesus Christ. So there is unity, and yet there is development. The illustration of the, the wineskins brings kind of a, a fuller picture of this, right? Not only is there their newness, but the, the forms and the practices of the old covenant will give way to new forms and new practices. In the new, wineskins would, would harden, calcify as wine would ferment inside of them. There would be all these pressures and, and gases that would uh, put pressure upon the wineskins and it would harden the wine and the wineskin would mature together. And of course, if you put new wine into old wineskins, pressure, gases would cause it to, to burst. So in other words, what held the old covenant together, its worship and its forms, will not be what holds the new covenant together. Their worship, God's people of old, is different than how we worship. And it all is about the coming of the Messiah. So the outward forms have changed. The heart issues are essentially the same, of course. We come before God and repentance and faith and trusting in his grace but the forms and the practices are are different God's people are no longer held under the tutelage of the mosaic ceremonies 
We glory in new covenant worship. We glory in the fulfillment that God has given to us. And and here's something else that we need to understand. There is a, a new attitude that comes along with this as well. Because once the king comes, once the Messiah comes, we do not go backwards in redemptive history. And we live in the light of his coming. So the rest of today we'll think about this. Feasting and fasting for the returning king. Jesus says, then they will fast. What does he mean by that? The king will be taken from them. Then they will fast. Does that mean that when Jesus ascends into heaven, now all of a sudden we're fasting again because he has been taken from us? Well, either it's a reference to that or... It's a reference to when Jesus is crucified and before he is risen. So how do we answer that? It's either a very short period of time or it's the time in which we live now. Our time now, waiting for Christ to come back, is to be characterized by fasting. Is that true? Is that what Jesus is saying? Well, how does the rest of Matthew answer that? Is Jesus, has he been taken from us? Is he not with us? What's the last thing Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew? Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Matthew chapter 18, Jesus says, Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Not only is Jesus with us each and every day by the power of his spirit and the power of his gospel promises, he is with us especially now as we assemble in worship in his name. He is present among his people and he is present among his people in the light of the fulfillment of all that was written about him, of all that he accomplished, of all that was done for us in the accomplishing of salvation. When Jesus was crucified, before his resurrection, the uncertainty of all of those things, his people, what were they doing? Panicking, running, sadness, grieving, perhaps fasting. But Jesus is with us now by the presence of his spirit. In other words, we are to live joyfully. As Christians, we are to to, to live with great joy in all that Christ has done for us. This is why we need to be careful about going backwards on the redemptive clock. In Advent season, sometimes Christians think we need to embody this waiting for uh, the king to come as if we kind of reverse the clock that he hasn't come. And that's not what we do. On Good Friday, yes, we are to to mourn over our sin and our sinfulness. Yes, we are to, to seek to make repentance before God. But our sadness will never be like the sadness of Jesus' followers when he was crucified on Good Friday. We always live in the light and the joy of Jesus Christ. And so that forms the foundation for all that we think about with these things. And yet we find that the early church did fast. The early church did fast, though it seems that they did so rarely. But we read in Acts 13 this. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So we find here in Acts 13, why were the people of God fasting then? Well, they're, they're fasting as uh, leaders in the church are going to be sent out. So uh, they're praying for the health of the church and the growth of the church. 
Luke 14, Jesus says, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. In other words, invite people to come to the marriage supper of the Lamb. There will be a great feast, and that feast is yet to come. There is a a greater feast that awaits God's people. We feast on the glories of Christ now, and yet we are suffering. We're in this in-between time. So, appropriate ways for people to fast now, be to fast for the the health of the church, the growth of the church, a time of great uh, spiritual yearning, a time of great spiritual struggle individually. As I mentioned at the beginning uh, this morning, the, the Christian Reformed Church had this unified practice of, of prayer and fasting uh, where the whole denomination was called to, to pray and to, and to fast one day a month. And it was widely known that uh, the world mission movement of the Christian Reformed Church always had a reach that went well beyond its size back in the early days. It reached well beyond what people ever would have thought possible. And could it not have been that they were a people who prayed for the advance of the gospel who asked the Lord for it and who did so humbly. And so there may be appropriate times for us to fast as Christians, but here's the key. We need to always be doing it in the light of Christ who has come, in the joy of what he gives to us. So how do we fast? Well, we must do so freely. We must do so freely. There's no set time for us to fast. And we are not to do it as a religious ceremony. How many days... As a New Testament Christian, how many days has God commanded you to fast? Zero. There are no commanded fasts for the New Testament church. And we need to make sure that we remember that. There may be times where we appropriately do it, but we must do it freely. Not as a religious ceremony, but wanting to bring ourselves to God. And we read in Colossians, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. No matter what you are doing, do everything to the glory of God in the joy of Jesus Christ who has come. And so we do so freely. We do so joyfully. It's not drudgery in Matthew chapter 6, right? Uh, Don't look gloomy like the hypocrites do. But it's joyful. We do so with the full knowledge of sins forgiven, just like we live always with the knowledge of sins forgiven. We live joyfully, as justified people, knowing that our standing with God is secure. We are secure in Jesus Christ, and so we take great joy in those things. We do so prayerfully. Fasting, what, what, is, what is fasting really about? It's, it's really about making a way for us to focus on God and to pray more. We do so compassionately. We are to have an outward posture in our fasting. John the Baptist's disciples fasted because they knew judgment was coming. They wanted to make themselves ready through repentance. God's people may find it appropriate to fast and to pray because we know judgment is coming for those who are outside of Jesus Christ. And our hearts are filled with compassion that the gospel would grow and advance. But we end with the thrust of the passage. Some people may come to this passage and say, well, Jesus says when he is taken from us, then they will fast. So are are we to, to, to live now that Jesus is in heaven, he's not with us bodily, so is our life to be characterized by fasting? Well, no, that's to miss it, isn't it? The passage reminds us that Jesus is with us. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We live in light of his coming. 
We live in the joyful knowledge of the wonder of the fulfillment of salvation. Jesus is with his people every day by his spirit. He is with us now as we are gathered in his name. We take great joy in understanding and knowing that our prophet and priest and king is always with us. We belong to God through Jesus Christ and we never, we never remove the joy of that thought from our minds. Salvation has come. So what do we do? We keep the feast of faith. No matter what you're doing, normal day, keep the feast of faith. Feast on the glories of Christ. A day of fasting and prayer, perhaps as a a church or a denomination or perhaps individually. What do you do? Keep the feast of faith. Keep the feast of faith. Live in the joy and the glory of knowing that your sins are forgiven in Christ, that he has come. Whatever you do, eat, drink, fast, pray, do everything to the glory of God, knowing that Christ is with us even to the end of the age. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you and ask for your blessing upon these words that we have considered. We give you all of the glory, uh, knowing that Jesus has paid it all for us, We understand uh, that it is only through him that we can have a hope of standing before you. Help us to live in the joy of salvation, even amidst all the trials of this life, even amidst all of the things that uh, we must go through, the spiritual battle that is ahead of us. Father, this is a time of, of suffering, and yet we know that you have called us to continue to keep the feast of faith as we look to Christ and uh, as we meditate upon his glory, give us that, uh, uh, those thoughts and that meditation today on the Lord's Day. And may we live for you. Keep us from sin and temptation in this coming week. In Christ's name, amen. We, uh, number 642, 642. We'll sing uh, 1, 3, 4, and 5. 1, 3, 4, and 5, all the